class last night on the uh, Century Cable out of Norwich. So every Tuesday night now, not just for the next couple of weeks, but every Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, that will be on. Now, we filmed Lessons 3 and 4 last night. So that gave us a full videotape. Once we get those duplicated, then we'll be able to go to uh, Comcast and Eastern and try to get on there so that before long we should have the area pretty well saturated, see what kind of response we're, we're going to get. Before we get started in our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we do thank you for your word and for the truth that is contained there and its objectivity. And as we come to your word, we realize that it is indeed alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that we would have the humility and the uh, responsiveness to take it in and the objectivity to apply it to our lives. We pray that God the Holy Spirit who indwells us would make this clear to us and empower us in its application. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Or James chapter 1, excuse me. James chapter 1, verse 22. I knew there were some twos in there somewhere. We're studying the first major division now after the prologue in James' epistle. It begins in verse 21, which was our subject last week. And we need to go back and review those concepts because that is fundamental to understanding this entire section. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And I said last time that's really kind of an awkward translation. I think we should translate this, therefore, put aside, it's an imperatival concept there, put, it, put aside all moral uncleanness and all the uh, abnormal growth which wickedness or evil is, and then receive, that's your imperative, the prerequisite is the putting aside Receive by means of humility the word implanted, which is able to sanctify. This is sozo here, but it's used in the sense of sanctification salvation, not justification salvation. So, which is able to sanctify, that's the concept, sanctify your souls. To bring you to the full quality of life that God has planned for the believer. God's plan for the believer, begins at the cross with phase one, salvation. We use the word saved often to refer to a person who is going to have eternal life. This phase one is what we call justification. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. But the word sozo, salvation, also relates and is applied to the spiritual life. Here we are saved, but we are saved from the power of sin in the life of the believer. This takes us back to the theme that, that James mentions in verse 20, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And there we saw that there is a category of righteousness which we'll call production righteousness. According to Hebrews chapter 12, we are to be producing the fruit of righteousness. This is not... a positional righteousness, it is sanctification righteousness, which derives from the application of Bible doctrine in our life. And then the third way in which the word saved is used refers to phase three salvation, where we are saved from the presence of sin. 
The subject of James is the believer's life. He is not addressing unbelievers in terms of how to have justification, salvation. He is addressing believers in terms of how to have uh, salvation, sanctification, salvation, and be saved from the power of sin in the day-to-day life. And there we saw that there is a prerequisite. The mandate is given in the verb receive. We are to take in the Word of God, but there is a prerequisite, and that prerequisite involves two aspects. First of all, what is not mentioned in this text is confession. 1 John 1.9 With confession, we recognize that there is sin in the life and we admit it. The context of 1 John 1 is such that in 1 John 8, John says that there are those, if, it says if we deny sin in the life. That's the position of arrogance is to deny that we're sinners and deny that there's sin in the life. In contrast, 1 John 1.9 says... If we confess, that is, if we admit, the opposite of denial is admission. If we admit to sin in our life, the sin in our life to God the Father, then we are forgiven and cleansed. This word cleansed is a very important word in the Greek. It is the word katharizo. K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O and has a rich history going back into the Old Testament that any time the priest would go into the tabernacle or temple into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, we'll draw this rectangle here to represent the Holy of Holies, outside in the courtyard was a laver. This was filled with water and he would have to wash his hands and his feet. Prior to uh, that, when, when the priest was originally ordained, he was washed from head to foot. That symbol symbolized or represented salvation, complete cleansing from sin. But each and every time he had to go into the presence of God in the holy place, he had to wash his hands and his feet, and that represented confession. The daily cleansing which must take place because even after salvation we continue to sin and commit sins, and that sin affects our fellowship with God. But at the point of salvation, when we are entered into union with Christ, we have positional sanctification, but we also have a relationship with God in time. Now, it is the bottom circle that we draw here represents our spiritual life under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we are instantly out of fellowship. And the Bible calls that, in the old King James, it was called carnality, uh, that's how they translated the Greek word flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it means to be under the control of the sin nature. Now sin, because the righteousness of God uh, can only have fellowship with that which is, has perfect righteousness, when we sin, that creates a, a, a break in our fellowship with God. And that must be dealt with. The Bible calls it grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, to recover from being out of fellowship and to be restored to fellowship with God, we use 1 John 1, 9. But that simply puts us back in the position where we can grow. It doesn't do anything positive. I think this is a misconception that some people have picked up along the way, that if I just confess my sins and I'm restored to fellowship, I'm under the filling of the Holy Spirit, I'll just start growing automatically. But that's not what all confession does is restore us to a position where once again filled with the Spirit we can begin to apply doctrine and grow. It doesn't, growth is not automatic. We still have to exercise our volition and make decisions. And part of this means that we are going to stay in the bottom circle and not commit those sins that easily beset us Hebrews 12:2. We're not going to commit those sins that get us out of fellowship, and that's why we have this command. Therefore, putting aside, and that's the from the Greek word apotithemi, which usually is used to talk about removing clothes. So it's like taking off a dirty garment in order to get washed. We're to remove the sin 
in our life. But we can't do that in the energy of the flesh. We must do it under the filling of the Holy Spirit through the application of doctrine. That sets up the prerequisite, which is indicated by the grammatical structure of verse 21. The main verb is the verb dekomai, D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I. It is an imperative, an aorist imperative, and it is preceded by the participle from apotithemi, which is always the case of what is called a participle of attendant circumstance. And participle of attendant circumstance is important because it always expresses the prerequisite for fulfilling the command. That's what you get from grammar. Isn't that fascinating that just, just the grammar alone can, can give you these clues as to the spiritual life? So when we read this, it says, Therefore, the, the command to put aside all filthiness, and that's a word that deals with moral uncleanness or sin, any kind of sin, and all that remains of wickedness, which is a terrible translation. The word wickedness is, is um, a genitive, but it is, is a genitive that explains the word remains, or it's really an excess. And it should be translated, uh, it's not just excess, but it's a, an abnormal growth almost, that which is abnormal. And all the abno- abnormalities of which sin is. That's how it should be translated. By me, that, And then the command, receive the word implanted by means of humility. And humility stress it. I'm going to stress this because humility is so rare to find and so rarely understood. It is having objectivity, related to objectivity. It's related to grace orientation, that all that we are comes from God and it has nothing to do with our own efforts and our own talents and our own abilities. And it has to do with teachability. Without humility, there is no teachability. No one will learn, and, and without humility and, and arrogance... No one can learn or go forward. So the, so the means by which we learn are the, the attitude that is necessary for learning the Word to grow in the spiritual life is humility. So I want to review a few basic points about humility before we go on. Humility emphasizes a lack of arrogance and true objectivity. This will be point number one. A lack of arrogance and true objectivity. Point number two, this includes authority orientation, which means respect for the authority of God the Father and the authority of Jesus Christ and the Word of God, which is the mind of Christ. So we must have humility. It is a respect for the authority of God to tell us the nature of Reality. You see, the issue in learning in the spiritual life has nothing to do with your native intelligence, which we might call IQ. It doesn't have anything to do with your education background. Because God in His grace has provided a means of learning that overrides natural intelligence and overrides education so that every believer has equal access to the Word of God and to understanding the Word of God. And this is through the filling of the Holy Spirit who is our teacher and is the one who helps us to understand the Word of God. So humility is authority orientation. And the trouble is that some people have a very high IQ and have a lot of education. Their education and their intelligence gets in the way and they start overthinking a lot of things. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't use our intelligence. I'm a firm believer that we ought to develop our minds to the fullest extent that we can. But what you often find is people who have a high IQ, let that get in the way, and they end up wanting to submit everything in the Scripture to their own rationalism rather than submitting by faith in the authority of the Word of God. So humility starts by recognizing the authority of God to define what what reality is and then submitting to that. That leads to point number three, which is that humility is teachability. Psalm 25, 8 through 9 says, Good and honorable is the Lord, 
Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. In justice, he guides the humble. Consequently, he teaches the humble his way. Without humility, one cannot learn the plan of God and the purposes of God. And when a believer operates on arrogance, he makes himself an enemy of God and antagonistic to the plan of God. So humility, point number three, humility is teachability. Point number four, every believer has the opportunity to learn Bible doctrine on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit and humility. Humility is what keeps the person in a status of teachability. So humility is necessary for teachability, which brings us to point five. Teachability recognizes two things, the authority of the teacher and the content of the message. One of the greatest problems we have today facing the church is a failure to understand the nature of the gift of pastor-teacher, which is really sort of one of those um, oxymorons of our society. It's an inherent contradiction. We live in an era when people are running around emphasizing spiritual gifts. And yet the one spiritual gift that is important for the teaching and instruction of, of the Christian life is reduced in its value below that of all the others. And people get the idea that the gift of pastor-teacher, and they reduce pastor now, the average church views the pastor as sort of the uh, CEO or the uh, chief operations officer. He's just the uh, man who runs things. And, of course, everything that has real value is the worship leader, and we saw that on Sunday morning. The guy who, who leads the singing. I don't know what pastors do today. They uh, don't apparently spend much time studying the Word of God anymore. They're too busy administrating the church and doing all of these other things. But in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12, the construction is used of a pastor-teacher. And this is a construction known as a hendiadis, where the two words are linked together, where the second word, teacher, defines the first word, pastor. And this also takes us back to the last chapter in the Gospel of John, when Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And therein we see that the role of the pastor is to feed. You feed the sheep that which provides nourishment. What is it that provides nourishment for the believer? It's the Word of God. We have a parallel passage to our passage here in, in James 1.20. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And this is the same grammatical construction that we find in James chapter 1 starts off with the same word, an aorist middle participle of apotithemi. And then we have an aorist imperative in verse 2, like newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that as a newborn baby, we're commanded to desire, to hunger for, to long for the pure milk of the word. Why? That by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So we have to ask the question, how is it that a believer grows? When you are first saved at salvation, the Bible says that you are born again or regenerated. That means that at this point you are a spiritual baby and absolutely ignorant about everything except how to get into heaven. Faith alone and Christ alone. So... In order to grow as a believer, you have to advance. Just as in the physical realm, that baby has to be uh, fed milk to begin with, and then uh, pablum and baby food that's been ground up and half digested for them already. Eventually, they can get on some form of solid food. And we all know that certain babies are rather finicky about what they eat, and children are finicky, and they only want to eat this, and they only want to eat that. And they don't necessarily want to have a balanced diet. But it is the responsibility of the parent to provide leadership in that particular area and to make sure they get 
a balanced diet so that they have all the vitamins and all of the uh, various things they need to have good nourishment that they can grow in a healthy manner, that their brain cells can develop correctly and all of their muscles develop correctly so that they can grow. You don't let the baby tell you what it's going to eat. You don't don't let the child dictate its menu. Now, some parents do, and those are called bad parents. (laughs) The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. There are a lot of pastors... It seems to be the, uh, the mood of the day is to go out and let the spiritual babies dictate the curricula of the local church. In fact, one of the popular trends today in the church growth movement is to go out and do, conduct surveys. This was made very popular by a man in Chicago who now has, is the pastor of the largest church in America. So every other idiot pastor in the country, wants to emulate what he has done so they can have great numbers. What he did was, was uh, I, I think the man's an evangelist, not a pastor personally, but that's another story. He went out and he surveyed the neighborhood. He went around to people who weren't going to church and said, why aren't you going to church? Oh, well, I don't like the music they sing. Well, we'll change the music. We'll have up-to-date stuff. Well, I don't like uh, long sermons. Okay, we'll have short sermons. Uh, I, you know, I go to a big church and I have to park miles away. Okay, we'll have visitor spots right up front where you don't have to walk very far. And so what he did was he conducted these surveys and let all of these people who, unbelievers, number one, who don't have a clue what spiritual priorities are supposed to be. And number two, if they, if they were believers, they were spiritual babies who were ignorant of any kind of doctrine. And he let those people dictate the priorities of the local church. Now, let me tell you that, to put that in another realm for you, in another analogy, that would be the same as if the school board, the local school board, went down to the kindergarten class or the pre-K class and asked all those kids what they wanted to do in school. And after they took down all the notes from what those kids wanted to do in school, went back and devised a curriculum that was based on what those kids wanted. That's insanity. Well, Rodmacher was perceptive enough several years ago. He was, he's now the chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary to make the very critical comment that the church in America is the largest nursery in the world. That we have made it our priority to develop spiritual babies and keep them in diapers and never challenge them to grow to spiritual maturity. And what we see from our passage in 1 Peter 1, 2 is that you start as newborn babes, but you're not supposed to stay a spiritual baby. You're supposed to grow to adulthood because you don't start truly producing in the spiritual life until you are a spiritual adult. It's just like in the physical realm. You don't truly start developing in life, producing in life, really enjoying life and getting everything out of life that that there is to get out of life until you reach adulthood and a semblance of emotional and physical maturity. Same thing is true in the spiritual life. That's why you don't want to spend a whole lot of time as a spiritual baby. But unfortunately, most Christians in this country stay down here as spiritual infants, and they never even come close to spiritual adulthood. Now, why is that? Because the average pastor in this country doesn't have a clue as to how to get his people from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And it's right here, the means is right here in verse 2 of First Peter chapter 2. That it is, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it, by what? By the Word. What Word? The Word of God. The Logos. Bible doctrine that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now let's turn back to James chapter 1, our passage. Starts off, verse 21, telling us the prerequisite. Confession, staying in fellowship. Trouble with a lot of people is as soon as they get in fellowship, they commit a sin again and they're out of fellowship and it doesn't do them any good. Stay in fellowship. Put aside all filthiness and what 
and the excess in which sin consists, the abnormal growth which sin is, by means of humility, receive or take in or learn the word implanted which is able to save your souls. This is not salvation, justification salvation, but spiritual life. The same thing. What is it that makes it possible for you to grow? It is the Word of God that does it. That's the two power options in the spiritual life. One is the filling of the Holy Spirit. He's our mentor, our teacher, our guide. He is the one that empowers the spiritual life. And secondly, the Word of God, for the Word of God is what? Living and powerful. It is the Word of God that is alive and powerful and that is the change agent. So, that brings us to the next command, which is in verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, this is a verse that has been yanked out of context, misinterpreted, misapplied, and used as a proof text for legalism. Let's make sure we understand what James is saying here. First of all, it's a bad translation initially. It does not say, prove yourselves anything. It begins with the Greek, Greek imperative from the verb genomai. Genomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, means to, uh, to be to become, to come into existence, to happen, to become something. So let's translate that, become. B-E-C-O-M-E, become. And because it's a second person plural imperative, it is you all, Southern, y'all. Y'all become something. Now let's parse the verb to see what we can learn from the grammar. First of all, it is a present imperative. Present is taken here as a customary present, which means it emphasizes the continuousness of an action that may or may not have already been in progress. So they may or may not already have been doing this, and it's addressed to every believer that whether or not you've been doing this, if you have, keep doing it. If you haven't, start doing it. That's the emphasis of the present tense. The present imperative emphasizes a general mandate for the development of the spiritual life and Christ-like character. Dan Wallace in his Greek grammar book states, it is often a character-building command to the effect that something should be made a habit or that the believer should be trained in a particular course of action. So this has to do with becoming something, something that you were not Originally, the middle voice emphasizes the fact that this must be done from your own volition. That means it's a moment-by-moment decision to continue to do this. And the imperative of command emphasizes, again, authority orientation. That God has the authority to dictate what we do and how we live in our lives. So it begins with the particle and, which is our D-E, which should be translated here either and or then. It is not a contrast. Then or and you all become and then we hit the important word. Doers. And it's not really doers here at all. It is only in a superficial sense. It's poiete. Poietes. Let the letter out. P-O-I. P-O-I-T-E-S. Okay, we'll get it right there. Poietes. It's the masculine plural nominative plus the genitive of logos. L-O-G-O-S, which stands for the Word of God. Now, what kind... To understand this, we have to first understand the significance of the genitive. It is a genitive of production, which means that it is the word here in the genitive which produces the action of the main verb, of the main noun. So it is the logos of God that produces the doer. 
But what kind, what does it mean, what does poietes mean? Often this is taken to refer to some kind of program, support some kind of program mentality in the local church. That as soon as you come to church, you need to start doing things for God. You need to go down and work in the Sunday school, and you need to go out and start witnessing, and you need to start doing all of these things. It is normally taken in the sense of some kind of overt activity in the Christian life, but that's absolutely wrong. You see, the average pastor out there is going to teach that the way you grow in the spiritual life is through prayer, witnessing, giving, doing all kinds of things around the local church. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of these things are the results of something else. It's the results of an inner transformation that comes from the Word of God. And what has to have priority is learning the Word of God. Studying the Word of God. That's the priority. It's a matter of cause and effect. And most people are out there trying to produce the effect without the cause. If there's no inner transformation from the Word of God transforming the mentality of the soul, then everything else is pure superficiality and it has nothing to do with true Christianity. It's just works. This does not mean go out and do, do, do for Jesus. What it means is to apply the Word of God. Probably the best way to translate this is, but become, but you all become appliers or practitioners of the Word of God. Poiete means to do, to act, to work. It has all kinds of meanings, but in the context, what James is talking about is applying what you hear. Remember, the command is to be quick to hear. And in Greek, just as in Hebrew, hearing doesn't mean just having your, your eardrums vibrated by sound. Hearing includes the idea of application. Husbands, you've probably heard your wife say, but you don't listen to me. And you say, well, I can repeat the words that you said. And you say, no, no, no. She says, no, no, no. You didn't really hear what I was saying. You didn't read between the lines. Okay, there was no application is what she said. This is the Greek and Hebrew concept of hearing is no hearing really takes place unless it results in application. So, James is unpacking what he means by the phrase, quick to hear. That if you think you're hearing, and it doesn't result in application, then you have short-circuited the process, and you're not going anywhere in the spiritual life. He says, and you all become appliers of the Word of God, and not only... That's what it reads in the Greek text. Not only hearers who delude themselves. Let's look at the learning process. It starts off with a pastor-teacher. Now this is why the gift of pastor-teacher is so important. God has provided different spiritual gifts for the body of Christ. Each gift has a role and a place. The man who has the gift of pastor-teacher is the man who has been spiritually gifted by God to get into the Word, to study it, and to extract the biblical principles, and then to communicate them to people, to the, to the sheep, so that they can grow. The person with the gift of mercy can't do that. The person with the gift of evangelism can't do that. The person with the gift of giving can't do that. The person with the gift of administration can't do that. They may be able to teach at some level, But the man who has the gift of pastor-teacher has been uniquely gifted and designated by God as the person who has that responsibility to the rest of the body of Christ. So he inherently has a position of authority, not because of who he is, but because of the message he proclaims. So the pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. 
That comes to the believer. But first of all, he has the Holy Spirit. He's under the filling of the Holy Spirit who makes that understandable to the believer under the category of pneumaticos or pneumaticos. And that's covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10, 11, 12, down through 14. This is spiritual phenomena. Now, once the, the Holy, this enters then into the ear of the individual. This is hearing. Then it enters into his, the mentality of his soul in the outer lobe, which the Bible calls the noose, the outer sphere of the mentality of the soul, N-O-U-S. And here it becomes gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. And that is merely academic knowledge. But what happens here is while the Holy Spirit makes spiritual phenomena understandable, He does not understand it for you. That means you have to engage the mentality of your soul to interact with what the pastor says so that you can comprehend it and understand it. That doesn't mean that you can just go back out and regurgitate it. Just because you have gotten all 15 points of a certain doctrine down in your notebook and that you can repeat those does not mean you have understood the doctrine. simply means you're able to take notes and get down what somebody said. You have to think about it. This is why the Bible often commands us to meditate to cogitate on the Word of God so we can think about it to make it understandable in the news. Once it enters the, the news as, as gnosis or academic knowledge, it has to go through another step because academic knowledge doesn't get you anywhere. Academic knowledge is just the staging ground for real spiritual growth. Having thought about it and meditated, it cycles on into the innermost sphere of your thinking which is called the heart, the cardia in the Greek, lave in the Hebrew, which is the innermost part of the thinking. Here it becomes epinosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. This is doctrine that is assimilated into the thinking of the soul. It's understood, and at this point... At this point, you exercise positive volition to meditate on it, and it becomes gnosis. At this point, you exercise positive volition, you understand it, and you believe it, and you say, this is what I believe. This is the essence of my life. This is critical to the way I view reality, and I believe it, and I'm making this my own, and it is assimilated by means of the Holy Spirit into your heart. Where, there is, where real transformation begins to take place. It starts on the inside as your thinking is transformed. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's, there is news because that's where it starts. It's, you, you don't start here. You start here. You renovate the thinking first with academic knowledge. It's just like every arena of knowledge in life. Whether it's auto mechanics, dentistry, or, or any kind of, of uh, investment or banking knowledge, you always start learning academic knowledge, and it may be years before you start with any kind of practical application. So first you have to understand it, then when you believe it, it's transferred by the Holy Spirit into the innermost part of the thinking of the soul, the cardia, where it is then usable for application. So you haven't applied it yet. At this point, it's just stored in the innermost part of your soul, so when the test comes, remember that's the context of James, when the test comes, now you have some doctrine stored in your soul and you can apply it. That's what James is getting at. It's not going, going to do you any good to accumulate a lot of academic knowledge spiritually. In fact, the people who have a lot of academic knowledge and no epinosis are usually troublemakers in the local church and create all kinds of trouble because they, they act like they know a lot, but my, 
experience is, number one, they really don't understand what they think they know. And secondly, there's no filling of the Holy Spirit, so there's no transformed character. There's no epinosis, so the character of Christ is not there. The fruit of the Spirit is not there. And it ends up that this person is puffed up. What, what uh, Paul says in Corinthians is that gnosis, he doesn't, when it's translated knowledge puffs up, that's not epinosis. That is gnosis. And the believer that does not transfer doctrine into the heart through the filling of the Holy Spirit and where it becomes epinosis operates on, on academic knowledge and that is nothing more than arrogance and feeds his arrogance, which is the opposite of humility and therefore there will be no spiritual growth. So we're mandated a general principle for the Christian life that we are to become appliers of the Word. The person who is not an applier of the Word is self-deceived. He is deluded. There are three arrogant skills that feed one another. The first is self-absorption. When a person focuses on themselves before long, they begin to uh, justify themselves, and that goes to self-justification, which culminates in self-deception. And then this feeds further self-absorption. These are three arrogant skills, and what we see here is that the person who does not submit himself to the authority of the Word of God, believe it, store it in his soul as epinosis, and then use it and apply it in the tests of life, is self-deceived. He's operating on arrogance. Now, verses 23 and 24 then describe the person who has short-circuited the what I'm calling here the grace learning spiral. It's grace because it's true for every single believer. Every believer has equal access to learning doctrine. The person who short circuits it, verse 23, for if, first class condition, if and it's true. It's assumed to be true in this case. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not an applier. Okay, this is the person who gets this far. They hear the word, they understand it, but they don't exercise positive volition toward it and transfer it by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit into the innermost part of the thinking of the soul. They are simply a hearer. They're accumulating a tremendous amount of academic knowledge. They have notebook after notebook of doctrine. They can tell you every little detail about the Bible, but it's not in their soul. They can argue every point. If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not an applier of the Word, he is like. So now we're going to get an analogy. This is a fairly perceptive analogy. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. Literally, it's like a man who looks at the face he was born with. So here's the picture. The Bible is compared at this point to a mirror. And here you come along and you get up in the morning and you go in and you look at the mirror and you see a reflection. Now, the harsh thing we all know about mirrors is they never lie. They are completely objective. And sometimes when we get up, especially for those of us who are getting a little more mature, shall we say, we look in the mirror and we're not real pleased with what it tells us about ourselves. And we may just choose to deny it. But we all know that when we get to work, if our hair is all spiky and sticking out in different directions, or we've cut ourselves numerous times shaving, that we'll be somewhat embarrassed by it. So we always pay attention to what the mirror tells us. Or we try to. That's the analogy. The person, in other words, the person who is merely an accumulator of academic knowledge is really a fool. He's living a superficial life and he's in denial about reality. For the Bible is like a mirror. It's objective. It's true. It's going to tell us exactly how things are and it behooves us to pay attention to it. The analogy is that the, the accumulator of academic knowledge is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and once he has looked at himself, he's taken the time to look, he's glanced it over, seen everything there is to say and he walks away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Out of sight, out of mind, he completely forgets what the objective reflection told him. 
That's the person who is the accumulator of academic knowledge. In verse 25 is a contrast. Verse 25 tells us about the person who is the practitioner of Bible doctrine. Tells us about the person who is going to pay attention to the Word. It says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Okay, let's look at the contrast. First of all, let's go back and look at the... At, you have two people here. You have the hearer, the hearer only. And over here you have, let's use a better word, the applier. The person who is applying doctrine. Four points of summary here. First of all, only Bible doctrine provides objectivity for honest self-evaluation. That's the only way you can know yourself. This is also called the doctrine of the perspicacity of Scripture. That means only the Bible is going to tell you exactly the way you are. It defines reality. Point two, thus humility is the prerequisite for receiving the Word. We all know that if anybody tells us how things really are in our life, we need a tremendous amount of humility to accept it. We can't let arrogance get in the way or it will destroy our objectivity. Humility is a prerequisite. Third, without humility, the response will be self-deception and arrogance and denial of reality. And then fourth, without humility, doctrine will never become anything more than simple academic knowledge and will have no spiritual value. So what do we learn about the successful believer in verse 25? His attitude begins, point number one, the attitude of the advancing believer begins with humility and objectivity and advances through diligence. Why do I say diligence? Look at that main verb there. The aorist active participle of the verb parakupto. Looks like this in the Greek, parakupto. P-A-R-A-K-U-P-T-O. It portrays a person who is looking and concentrating on what he's looking for to the point that he's stooped over, may even get down on his hands and knees and dig around to try to find that for which he is searching. It implies energy, it implies concentration, and it implies diligence. The one who looks diligently at the perfect law. So the growing believer is not someone who just has a passing academic curiosity, but is intent. He has made learning doctrine the highest priority in his life. He's not just going to show up at church once a week or two or three times a month, but he's going to be there every opportunity he has in order to let the mirror of God's Word reflect upon his life. He looks intently at what? At the perfect law, but that's not a very good translation. The word translated perfect, I don't know why translators always want to translate this word perfect. It's, we've studied it before. It's our word teleios. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. And it can mean perfect in the sense of flawless. But I don't know that there's any place in the New Testament that it means that. It also means to bring something to completion, to complete, to make whole. So here we'll translate it with the word complete. But one who looks intently, diligently, vigorously at the complete law. What is that referring to? That is referring to the completed canon of Scripture. Now, it wasn't complete yet for James. In fact, James is one of the earliest of the books of the New Testament. But once the Bible is complete, only then can man have a pure, total view of who he really is. All through the Old Testament and up through part of the New Testament era, when the canon was incomplete, the mirror of God's Word could give only a partial or incomplete view of man. 
Let's look at a correlating passage here. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a very familiar passage. Love never fails, but there are gifts of prophecy. They will be abolished. I'm going to correct the translation as I read through this. Love is permanent, but if there are spiritual gifts of prophecy, they will be abolished. If there are tongues, they will cease of their own. It's a different verb there. If there is knowledge, it will be abolished. The same word is used of knowledge and prophecy. Both are abolished. So, prophecy and knowledge are abolished. Then we continue to talk about knowledge and prophecy because tongues are seen by the passage as being irrelevant. It's just going to disappear. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. This is the Greek phrase, ek marus, which means partial. Whatever we're saying about prophecy and knowledge, they are revelatory gifts. They have to do with the revelation of doctrine. But they only give partial doctrine. No one who has the gift of prophecy knew the whole realm of doctrine. No one who had the gift of knowledge knew the whole realm of doctrine. They each contributed a piece of the over, uh, of doctrine, but not all of it. Now, verse 9 says, Knowledge is partial, prophecy is partial, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. What does perfect mean? Once again, perfect here is a mistranslation of our word telios. Now notice, the context is comparing telios with something that's partial. It's not comparing something that is perfect with something that is imperfect. It's com- contrasting something that is incomplete with completion. So the fact that we're dealing, the subject is incomplete, is that which is incomplete, the word perfect must be translated as complete. When the completed comes, the partial will be done away with. What's the partial? Prophecy and knowledge. The same, again, will be done away is the same verb used back in verse 8. So what abolishes, what abolishes prophecy and knowledge is that which completes. Well, if prophecy and knowledge are revelatory gifts, then what abolishes them is going to be of the same kind, that is, revelation. So when the completed revelation of God comes, or the completed canon comes, then the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge will be done away with. Now, tongues is viewed as secondary by the writer. Why? Because the purpose of tongues is given in chapter 14 as related to God's purpose for Israel in announcing judgment. And so once... um, Once Israel was taken out of the picture through divine discipline in 70 A.D. under the armies of Titus, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and the Jews went out under the fifth cycle of discipline, tongues was no longer significant. Now the canon isn't completed until around 90 to 95 A.D. So first tongues dies out and then prophecy and knowledge are abolished. And then we get two interesting analogies. Verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. What do those things relate to? Speaking, thinking, reason? They relate to knowledge. This illustrates the difference between incomplete and complete knowledge. A child has incomplete knowledge, but when they are an adult, they have a complete understanding of things, and they put away the incomplete. Then verse 12 illustrates the same incomplete, complete dynamic in relation to prophecy. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. Where have we talked about mirror recently? James 2. The Word of God is compared to a mirror. But a mirror that is incomplete only gives a partial reflection. Now, and it's interesting, the word that's used for now there means now at this present time and verse 13 uses a different word for now, which means now in this church age. Verse 13 is, but now in the church age, what continues? Faith, hope, and love. Verse 12 says, but now 
now at this present time in this pre-canon period during the apostolic age when we have an com- incomplete canon, now we see in that incomplete canon that mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now this isn't face to face with God, folks. This is face to face with a completed mirror. And this, the terminology that's used here is reflective of terminology used back in the Old Testament. God is speaking to Moses and He says, Moses, I'm going to speak to you. He doesn't say face to face. He says mouth to mouth. But with other prophets, I speak. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses the word, in the Greek word enigma. Enigma. That means uh, dimly. It's the same word that's translated dimly here in verse 12. So the verbiage that's used in verse 12 is reminiscent of the same terminology that is used back in Numbers when God is talking to Moses about the nature of prophetic communication. That too often the prophet doesn't really understand the message that he's given. He can communicate it clearly, but he doesn't understand all of its ramifications. It's an enigma to him. But with you, when you have the completed canon of Scripture, you can know what God has to say. So this is the analogy. For now we see in this, because we have an incomplete canon, it's an enigmatic mirror. But then, when the canon is complete, we will have perfect knowledge. We will know exactly what God has to say to us. Then face to face with Scripture. Now, my knowledge is partial. But then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. In other words, the Word of God, when it's complete, is going to give us that complete objective knowledge of ourselves that we need in order to grow and advance spiritually. Let's go back to James 1. James 1 uses this same kind of imagery. But one who looks intently at the complete law, the law of liberty, here... James refers to the Bible now as the law of liberty. We have seen in our study of Galatians on Sunday morning that Paul refers to the Mosaic law as a slave. It enslaves us. We are in bondage to it. We are like a child in the Roman system that is enslaved to a pedagogue, and that pedagogue is the Mosaic law. We are in bondage to the law. But the completed canon with all of the information about the the completed work of Christ on the cross and the spiritual life of the church age, now becomes a law of liberty. This is my second point here. The term law of liberty reflects a contrast with the Mosaic law, which is bondage. We've seen that in Galatians 4.3, which says, So also we, while we were children, and that refers to Israel in the history of salvation, while we were children, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Point three, in contrast to the Mosaic Law, which was designed to restrain sin, criminality, and idolatry, and to promote establishment freedom and reveal man's inability to save himself, the Law of Liberty emphasizes the true freedom of the church age believer. Freedom to advance spiritually and to glorify God. This isn't the freedom to sin. This is the freedom to grow. The freedom to and any time you have freedom to grow and succeed, you have to have freedom to fail. This is a principle that people in our country have failed to understand. This is the principle underlying uh, capitalism. That to the degree that you allow people the freedom to succeed, you have to allow them a comparable freedom to fail. If you take away that freedom to fail and you put a safety net there, to the higher the safety net goes, the lower the ceiling of success becomes until eventually you end up in socialism when everybody operates at really the level of the lowest common denominator and you take away any incentive to succeed and to become a success. So freedom is now the right of the church age believer because he is no longer enslaved to the Mosaic Law. But one who looks diligently at the completed law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Abides by it, again, is a word that is loaded 
with meaning in the Greek meno, M-E-N-O. In many places, it refers to our fellowship with God. We are to abide in Christ. That is a synonym for remaining in fellowship. And so, remaining in fellowship is related to continuous obedience of God's Word. But we know that when we fail, we have immediate restoration through 1 John 1, 9. God does not leave us out there in under the control of the sin nature in carnality. We have a way to gain forgiveness and to be restored to the spiritual life. So in contrast to the Mosaic Law, the Law of Liberty emphasizes the true freedom of the church age believer. Point number four, James is not contradicting Paul here by talking about the law. He agrees with Paul in Romans 6.14 that we are not under law but under grace. He would agree with Peter in Acts 15.10 where Peter said that the law was a yoke which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. He would agree that salvation freed us from the bondage of the law. As Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3, 6-7, Paul said that the Old Testament law was a ministry of death. The letter kills, but the Spirit makes alive. All of this flows out of an understanding of the new covenant, which provides a blessing for the church-age believer through the filling of the Holy Spirit who transforms the life from the inside out. We saw this in Galatians 3, 13, and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So James is not contradicting Paul at all. Many people want to say that and we're going to have to come back to that issue again and again in the coming weeks. Point number point number five this is consistent with the statement Christ makes in John 8:31 and 32. There Jesus said, "If you abide in my word, that's fellowship. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine." That is continuous obedience. It reflects the theme of persistence and endurance which James emphasizes. And then Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth." That is, the truth is Bible doctrine. The Word of God. It is the Word of God that is the power in the believer's life under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. It is the Word of God that is the law of liberty, and when we abide by it, then we have true freedom indeed. And then we come to the final statement. This man, that is the one who applies, shall be blessed in what he does. Now that looks awfully confusing. It looks like if you do this, then God will bless you. That's not what it's saying. We have to look at the Greek. The Greek says, this person shall be, future tense, potential, this shall be blessed by means of what he does. Okay? Let's go back and understand the issue here. It's in plus the dative of means. not because of what we do. This is because. If you do this, because you do it, God blesses you. But obedience is the means. Why? What happens is, as you take in the Word of God and you apply it, and you become an applier of the Word, that produces maturity. As you mature, you develop a capacity. You develop capacity for life. Once you develop capacity for life, then God will pour out on you those contingent blessings in time. He holds them back until you're ready. Just as you as a, as a good parent do not give your children gifts that they're not ready for in maturity. Have I lost sound now? I'm gone. Well, it's about, we're about done. We'll come back and wrap that up.
next week. We just ran out of power. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to understand its dynamic in the spiritual life. That under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is your word that you use to transform our thinking and to transform our lives from the inside out. That we might grow and advance to spiritual adulthood. That we might glorify you in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that we might be mindful that we are not here simply for the intellectual exercise to learn all of these things because it's fun to learn, but we are here to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking that we might glorify you. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.